Hello and welcome to Women Who Self Care, the podcast that seeks to encourage you to put your health and your ambitions first. My name is Boo and today's guest is Priyanka Dubey. Priyanka is an Indian journalist and writer, but has also worked and studied around the UK and various other countries. Her most recent book is No Nation for Women, a reportage on rape from India, the world's largest democracy. So it is safe to say, and take this as a content trigger warning, we will be discussing women's rights and issues in India, so we will highlight things like rape. So if this is something that is sensitive to you, maybe give this episode a little skip. Otherwise, I hope that you find this episode as thought-provoking, intriguing, activism-promoting, and actually incredibly inspiring as I did. Priyanka really emphasises the absolute imperative importance of self-care for women in India, but also just women in general everywhere. So Priyanka, what prompted you to write No Nation for Women? This book came out of my own life experiences and it's a very personal book for me. I was born and raised in a conservative, regressive North Indian household. And uh, as a child, I always felt curious about, uh, you know, why things were the way they were uh, in my my country, in my household and around me. And uh, and I wanted to... I wanted to understand why is everybody behaving with me differently and why, you know, uh, are there restrictions on everything that I'm doing? Uh, Why am I being controlled so much? And uh, why am I like, you know, burdened with this whole honor thing? Why am I carrying the honor of my family on my uh, on yeah. my shoulders and all that. So uh, all the discrimination that I saw as a child always made me uncomfortable and it made me curious. So this was the most natural book for me, you know, the most obvious thing to do, um, an attempt to understand uh, why things are the way they are around me. Mm. So you said that this book comes from personal experience. So presumably that's because you're a reporter, so you have been covering these sort of stories around human rights and women's rights. So what specific inequalities affect Indian women? I don't know where to begin with because um, because the list is really long. But if you start from the point when... Uh, when a girl child when a girl child is conceived uh, from even you know from that very point um, till now um, you know generally speaking women girl childs are not welcomed in india uh, people are more happy if 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 a boy is coming so there are uh, uh, i uh, i should say that there are slight changes uh, there are uh, you know, there are a couple of, uh, in, in my generation, I know that, you know, people are educated and a couple of people, like maybe a small percentage, a fraction of people uh, do welcome girl child also. But the fraction is very little. It's almost negligible. Uh, yeah. By and by and large, if you talk about the larger picture and like a general trend, the birth of a girl child does not make people happy in an household because they are considered as a burden, uh, you know, who have to be... Uh, the family has to raise money for dowry etc and then the girl has to be married off and like she's a liability instead considered a liability instead of an asset so that's the problem Uh, that's the basic root of the problem and then you know when uh, India is a rural country by and large we have a number of small towns and villages and metropolis the geographical area of metropolis is is limited Uh, it's it's very little uh, as when when you know when put against the geographical landscape, uh, the rural geographical landscape of this nation. So in the rural, yeah. in, in rural India, largely and in small town India, uh, after the girl is born, the, the, the process of discrimination, the whole journey of discrimination starts. Um, uh, you know, I can give you examples of where the girl child, uh, uh, 
you know, she'll not be educated in the same kind of good schools. Uh, there's not much investment in the education of a girl child. Uh, in, in terms of nutrition value, uh, you know, the nutrition uh, or, and uh, the care of a male child is is most important for the family. So, you know, like bo- boys are fed, uh, like they're fed with a lot of, you know, every any Indian family, if they have enough, uh, if they have enough, resources they'll feed children I've, I've seen that normally parents feed in all, all their children but if they have if they're short of resources then 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 they'll prioritize feeding the the, the boy um, yeah. the boy would like with all no all kind of good things like cream honey or whatever or butter yeah. or, or things like that so the nutrition nutrition wise also uh, the more importance is is given to the nutrition of a of of male child, he has to be strong. He has to be fed well, uh, and then it comes the when it comes to education. Um, there's uh, you know families go to any extent to educate their male child uh, because uh, but but when it comes to girls, they have like one there are one thousand excuses. Um, the dropout rate of uh, of 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 female students in India is extremely high. Um, a lot of girls you know drop out before high school or after high school. So um, only and only three uh, percent, very little. I think uh, three years ago this was the figure. I don't know what's the current figure, but less than five percent of Indian girls uh, were able to finish their postgraduate degree. Um, I, I'm talking about a three-year-old. Uh, this is a three-year-old figure, but um, but but very minuscule percentage of girls. Higher education is just like a dream. Like you know, the girls barely are able to finish their school. They are made to drop out of school because of silly, because of reasons like I'll give you the reasons that that uh, the high school is like five kilometers away, and how is the girl going to go five uh, five kilometers away? It's out of the village. Who will take her? Who will take care of uh, you know of her when she's commuting? And if she has, if, if if you give her a bicycle, then she like, then people are worried, families are worried that, you know, she might venture here and there. Uh, so they want to basically control that the girl should not step out of the village. She should be in front of the eyes. And there's a lot of stress is given, is, is given on control. So, you know, the, the, the logic that I've heard, because I've been reporting for 11 years now and mostly in Indian, yeah. in, in rural areas. So uh, the logic that I hear parents giving me is like, the, is that the school is far away, so we cannot send the girl child, but the male child, of course, he can go to far away schools. He can go and study in other cities, in other, in bigger cities also. And he can do like whatever because nothing will happen. But if a girl goes out and somebody, uh, if something happens to her, which essentially means is a sexual assault or something, or if she, you know, marries someone else or falls in love, or then she'll bring bring disgrace to her family. So you know, she'll like bring bad name to the family and she'll bring shame to the family. So basically, the problem is that the that girls bear this uh, burden of uh, honor all the time, and just to protect on the name of protecting that honor. Their lives are controlled, their sexualities are controlled, their movement is controlled and uh, this all of this, this matrix eventually leads to uh, a situation where women have stunted growth. I, I mean stunted in terms of, uh, you know, opportunities, educational opportunities and, uh, yes. and nutritional opportunities and just, you know, opportunities to be and to realize their potential as a full human being. Mm. It's interesting what you said about control and the need to control women for their own safety. I think this is often used as a sort of excuse to 
well, definitely control women, even if it's not an overt and conscious decision. It's often quite manipulative and coercive. You know, you can't do that because X will happen or, oh, if you wear that, this will happen. You know, it's just instilling women with fear. And obviously it is, especially in places like India, dangerous to be a woman sometimes. But often what we're protecting women and girls from is male violence and um, men in general. So for me, it would make more sense to tackle the source of the problem. That would make more sense to me. So I am wondering why Priyanka, of all the things that are affecting Indian women, did you decide to report on rape? So I'll come to that. But but just before that, I would like to address this thing um, um, that, uh, you know, the question that, that, that Indian families try to control. Uh, it's basically a tricky thing. So Indian families, most of the Indian families, urban, rural, semi-rural, um, the small town families, uh, in India, in, in the society by and large, families and everyone say this on the face of it that they're trying to control the uh, and uh, women and her life for her own good. You know, this is the thing that is said to yeah. us. But but actually, it's not so. What my understanding is that um, it's basically, uh, it's, it's just a bad way of, you know, you cannot ask women to, uh, you know, like, keep themselves... Uh, covered in a, in, in a jute sack or something and just, you know, like be inside the home and live like a prisoner just because uh, the outer world is not safe. What you need to do as a democracy, India as a democracy, what you need to do as a democracy is to is to create institutions and, 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 and safe environment for women so that they can, you know, enjoy all constitutional rights which, which the constitution of India gives to Indian women and they can, you know, access all opportunities, walk freely on road, wear whatever they want to wear, live the the, their lives the way they want to live so uh, but but instead of uh, because in, but instead of ensuring and 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 providing us with such a environment where uh, women can flourish and just live and uh, with, without fear um, you know families uh, because of um, um, patriarchal fa forces in the fa in families and in Indian society try to use this unsafe environment against women and like kind of always you know put this uh, whole argument uh, that they are trying to that you should not go out because outside is not safe so basically this argument stems from patriarchy it's it's deep-seated patriarchy and the male world the society and patriarchy is across gender what i'm like um, i have seen that a lot of old elder women in rural semi-rural as well as urban india are so conditioned deeply conditioned in this whole environment that they also you know come up and um, and they are also against uh, uh, allowing their daughters or people uh, around them to realize their full potential. So what essentially I'm what essentially I'm trying to say is that uh, patriarchal forces, um, you know, always use this argument, and they do not correct the the root cause. They do not. Uh, they are not. You know, like correcting the. Uh, the police system, the police Indian policing system, which uh, and uh, so social system, and just essentially the mindset of people, so that women can uh, live freely. But instead, always saying that you know you should be in home because that's the only space where you will be safe, which I think is bullshit. And uh, oh, and and, okay. and and I chose to do this book on rape because I think there are numerous you know like cases and uh, numerous um, there's just no end to it. It's so dark I don't know where to start from, and it's like it's so dark that it also comes across as a dark tragedy and like dark 
darkly comical to me at times because i've been dealing with this thing and like working in this area for a long time now so i chose uh, rape because among the endless number of crimes that happen against women in india every day rape is perhaps the only crime for which the woman is solely blamed like she herself is blamed so um, you are um, squarely blamed and you uh, are um, and you know and the society says it says that you must have you know called this upon yourself by wearing short clothes or by you know stepping out at odd hours or by going around with boys and uh, yeah. since you have a boyfriend so you deserve it like you are not a girl yeah. of good character and so this is this thing in india victim shaming is a thing like it's it's a big thing it's it's a cultural thing which we need to fight against and which you know indian feminists and writers and intellectuals and also common people and um, organizations here are have been raising their voice against but uh, we have a long way to go because uh, we need to bring in deep uh, and radical changes in the mindset of people uh, if we if we have to stop victim shaming someday and that is going to take take time i don't know how many years because in my lifetime i've been working since 21 and i'm 32 now and uh, i have not seen much change in 11 years this is my 11th year of working and i've uh, and i've seen that the first thing people do when a rape survivor comes out with a complaint is that they question the survivor they question her narrative they do not you know start by believing the victim they do not uh, trust her and when they're questioning you know they're so brutal and so rude and so un un unempathetic and uh, and insensitive uh, that you know proposing very uh, like some outrightly uh, bruising questions bruising kind of questions in, to to someone who has just you know suffered or survived a some immeasurable amount of violence and trauma so you will see people here questioning why were you out at that hour um, you know and and she's 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 there to file a complaint against what has happened to her she's at the police station and nine out of 10 cases the police station or at other places in her own family among her own friend circle also she'll find people who instead of questioning the perpetrators will question her and, and ask her why were you out at at 10 pm at night what were you doing out on the streets well, why were you wearing such a short dress why were why were you at the bar or why were you you know partying with friends or why were you even what was the need to study why were you going to tuition why was what was the need to go to take a public bus or or a, a or a public transport why were you why were you why do you have a boyfriend why are you uh, stepping out and like if you are roaming outside on streets with a boyfriend without being married to him then you are certainly a girl with bad character then you deserve it like this is the implicit interpretations when they question you so the the whole this whole credited discrediting the 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 survivors narrative is a big thing in india and it's so painful it's so painful i don't have words for it and yeah. then you know when the matter goes to court and the police and during the police investigation and like this thing comes up again and again and again and things are said like during investigation also that she was consensual or blah 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 like she consented for it all kind of you know shitty things and these things are so painful that they they kind of bruise the survivor like you know very deeply no, mm, and i think that bruising i think it's a bruise because i think women get hit with this sort of shame immediately before anyone even specifically names and shames you in particular for instance it's just culturally i think globally an issue whereby men can sleep with as many women as they want and they are 
praised. They are kings of the jungle. They are just doing it. They're brilliant. Women, it's just, you know, the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. And what really repulses me um, around shame and when, for instance, women are shamed for being involved with a rape, unfortunately, um, you know, as you said, it's 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 her fault in there. Why were you on the bus there? Why were you wearing that? And often it's said, you know, you are asking for it. And what I find even more gross than the idea that a woman wore a dress one day, maybe it was the only thing that she'd washed that day, um, and then was asking for a violent crime to be, you know, acted upon her, is gross and disgusting. But what I find even worse is actually with that line of thinking, if you're saying that what a woman wears or whatever is non-verbally insinuating her intentions. So a woman wearing a potato sack, for instance, maybe she doesn't leave her home. She's wearing a potato sack. She does not desire sex in any way, okay? Now the opposite end by this way of thinking is a woman naked in the centre of town. That woman, by walking into there, is wanting violence where the other one isn't and what that is saying to me actually is a woman who desires sex is wrong in their eyes a woman who has a sexual appetite as she is a human being should be punished for that the woman who kowtows and this is why rape is about control who is at home who is nothing who is not a human is cherished you know she's beautiful she's a brilliant woman and yet women carry this massive beauty burden you know they're expected to shave their legs or put makeup on do their hair etc do anything that makes them desirable but the very act of doing that is shameful in itself so it's this vicious circle that we're that women are just subjected to all the time I understand that. Yeah, I understand where coming from. I often feel and I often say this, um, that, that in India, sometimes I feel when I see the amount of violence and when I see the amount of victim shaming and when I see the amount of, you know, negation and, and, and how the victims' uh, testimonies are discredited here, sometimes I feel that in India, it's just, it's a crime to be born as a woman. And, you know, when I was a reporter with Tehilka magazine, um, one of my cover stories was titled, Huna hi jinka abraad hai jahan. It, it's in Hindi and in, in, in English it roughly translates to where uh, they're being born as women is their, is their sole crime. So when I'm saying this, what I'm trying to say essentially is that, you know, like the whole cycle of violence and the whole cycle of discrimination just starts... Uh, when you are uh, born as a woman uh, here and like it's from your birth and then it goes on till your death. So you're saying that you have worked since you're 21 and now you're 32 and you've seen little to no change with regards to women's empowerment and the way that women are treated. Of course, I'm sure if we were to look at Indian laws and policies, there would be changes with regards to how women are treated or how they are protected. But in daily life, this may not be necessarily reflected as you are very clearly demonstrating with your reporting and your writing of this book. So perhaps this is me clawing at hope. But do you see any sort of change in attitudes towards women in India at all? And or some movement towards women's empowerment and rights and safety for women? 2012 December uh, gang rape case, which we also 
you know yeah. no which we also address as the nirbhaya case in india so the nirbhaya story was a watershed movement for a lot for a lot of us uh, at least uh, you know people who are living in metropolis and in metro cities in india so that case uh, the december delhi december gang rape which took place in a bus that played a role of a catalyst for uh, initiating a lot of change even if nothing much came out of it in terms of concrete tangible achievement uh, it was a great conversation starter so yes. which 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 i really value as a person as a woman and as a reporter so what the nirbhaya episode did what you know the the cases uh, and the stories of 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 sexual violence against women on the front page so now it was easy for us to convince editors you know to let us uh, do a in depth piece or to let or to you know or to ask them to deploy us on stories of sexual violence earlier these stories were being you know like trashed on the on page number 12 in in a single column and and you know and the and the one and the reporter who would be covering women and children issues would be kind of looked down upon as some kind of you know boring thing uh, and 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 always the political reporters um, have been the stars in indian newsrooms um so um, and women and children issues were kind of looked upon as kind of ngo thing or something you know like which is just not sexy or like it'll it'll never come on front page so the women and children beat reporters were also looked down upon and these these subjects were never given much importance but after the nirbhaya movement there was a change in conversation and uh, you know editors suddenly they because there was so much public pressure and since people came out on streets and protested in delhi so there was so much pressure because people were interested in it, in it and people took you know like engaged with the issue so much which forced the media to engage with the issue as well and to give space to it yeah. so and to give space to it and and since then no like violence against women uh, there has been uh, a, it has been a conversation starter and uh, comparatively easier to get these stories uh, commissioned etc but that's about it uh, there was a law in, in in terms of legal changes uh, justice varma committee uh you know was constituted to look at the situation of women and generally in india and it did gave its recommendations and we did have a criminal amendment act um, which i think was amended into 2013 only the legal amendment was there you know which we um, had increased punishments and all that in cases of rape uh, death penalty was uh, strongly introduced and all and all of that happened so the legal part of it happened but when i go to the ground today and i've been reporting constantly i meet people in rural india and in small towns and in, in in big cities when i go out today i do not see the change in the mindset of people no and i think that it's key to if we want to bring long term changes and yeah. the this the second parameter which kind of you know like which depresses me or which tells me how things are going bad and spiraling down on the ground is the national crime bureau record figures so india has the system of calculating and like keeping a record of the crime that happens in the country every year when we call it the national crime records bureau figure ncrb so the national crime records bureau figure tell me that the rate of crime against women has been going up in india in past decade in last year also there has been a rise in 2020 also and uh, government figures say that in india somewhere in the country one woman is registering a case of rape in every 16 minutes 
and i'm talking about the official figures so india is a very conservative generally like conservative country and it's difficult for women to come out and to file fir's so you can imagine that the unofficial figure must be multiple times higher than than what we actually you know see on the record so what we are seeing on the record is just the tip of the iceberg so many cases go unreported because you know family do not want to report and and uh, families uh, are are hesitant because of the shame associated with rape so i have a question about rural india v metropolitan india there is often a trend in most countries i'd say where the unequal distribution of wealth can sometimes determine the level of crime or especially in this case crime against women mostly urban metropolitan areas tend to have more wealth in them and though there is more violent crime so i'm thinking here about london way more stabbing in london than there is in oh, where i am from in the peak district for instance in haversage but there is often a higher level of education in cities and a higher level of political awareness and so people tend to vote more liberally and be more progressive in their thinking makes me think that with the amendments to the law and the protests this is a step in the right direction there was a there was a big movement uh, and people came out on streets and uh, you know after the december 2012 december gang rape but there were mostly students and uh, a lot of india came together uh, you know there there's no doubt about it after the nirbhaya episode and there were protests all across the country in in all major metropolises but uh, that should not confuse us uh, you know, to to believe that crime against women has gone down in urban areas so there was at least an acknowledgement that this is a problem and we need to talk about it but still we figure like we document horrible cases of violence against women in urban india all the time so it's not that uh, urban india is kind of a holy cow or you know things are very very rosy here so um, so it's, it's the same in rural and urban india the only difference is that in rural india the challenge of women to come out and to fight for justice is manifold because it's a very close knit and more regressive fabric and access to everything right from uh, you know legal counsel or uh, or social support is just you know abysmal actually and it's often the case when a country becomes more progressive more open especially with its laws there is also the complete opposite to that when there is more openness people tend to also close down you know when there is more change especially if it's rapid change people tend to rebel against that so for instance in my country in the UK um the sort of inclusivity i think with refugees the increase of immigration ultimately left a lot of people to feel um pushed out in a sense which is why i think brexit happened and this is across all of europe i'm speaking to all my friends um who you know come from different countries and they're all saying that there has been a rise in white supremacy for instance and nationalism and it does worry me that it might only be a matter of time before that lack of intolerance bleeds into other areas of human rights so whilst there may be more conversation around equality and perhaps even laws put in place to protect human rights is there also a general rise in intolerance in india like in the uk or europe or the rest of the world 
because of my reporting work i've been very closely involved with uh, with the political developments and the social developments in the country in past one decade and i can safely say that there has been extreme rise in intolerance in the country in past uh just generally violence is on rise and uh, you know for different reasons um, there has been a whole issue around cow and like for for multiple multiple reasons intolerance has been growing up and besides the physical manifestation of violence uh, i also see intolerance in the political discourse in the media discourse and how the media is behaving so you forget about everything else if you just look at the media just look at just look at the evolution of media of india in past few years you will see that there have been there has been unprecedented polarization in indian media i see uh, you know like dinner tables are divided like never before and so it's very tricky because everybody is questioning you know like everybody is thinking about what is fact because fact has been is has become different for different people so like somebody if you quote a fact from x channel to one person that one person will quote back a fact from y channel to you and say like people have counter versions they have you know um, favorite channels and i think this has been this is very depressing because uh, there's polarization and intolerance in media and uh, which is not healthy for any democracy because uh, for any healthy democracy uh, you know all the media should focus on is facts and yes. uh, and and uh, they should cover facts uh, dispassionately uh, which is uh, something that i find missing in india so all the intolerance is just a reflection of how intolerant the country is becoming so you talk on the media priyanka but you are the media <laughs> as a journalist you are covering the stories that we will read and i understand that journalists need to put a roof over their head and so sometimes whilst they might want to write about one thing they might have to write about another thing. So with that said, how have you experienced being a journalist? You know, what have you done to sort of write about the things that you want to write about now? But equally, your journey in becoming a journalist, were there any obstacles? You've spoken about the traditional role of women in India and being a female journalist, that slightly goes against it. So I'd love to know about your experience. I, I faced a lot of... Uh resistance and and i my biggest battles were my domestic battles you know that i fought on my family front convincing my family yeah. or just convincing them uh, about uh, the worth of what i was doing and that i was not bringing shame to them so this was my biggest yeah. battle and work wise i uh, paid huge price what i'm trying to say is that i chose i was very selective of where i was working so i uh, i worked in good magazines and like were public interest magazines and very committed to towards journalism and all that um, anyway so i worked at very selective places um, so the situation was good and i did not face any on your face kind of you know like crude discrimination or something from in my workplace but uh, uh, but i paid a huge price of it like i worked at places which used to pay peanuts and uh, you know were struggling magazines and were only uh, you know like only survived on the tides of idealism and like changing the ideas of changing the world the ideas of changing the world etc so uh, i if i would have joined like a mainstream corporate media organization then the scene would have been absolutely different because i know of a lot of women journalists in india 
who work in cities and small towns who do face huge amount of discrimination in newsrooms i was fortunate enough and i proved very early uh, you know why my work that i was serious and i am i was going to stay here so also like people you know did not mess with me easily but but i know that this is an issue and it it exists in yeah. india why journalism then i know that you said that your father was trying to encourage you to do engineering which you know in the uk we have loads of programs trap out trying to get women into stan so what was it about journalism that enticed you to do it i think i was always you know like i uh, as i told you about the book that i was a keen observer as a child and i was curious to understand why things were around me the way they were and i did not wanted to take money from my father i wanted to earn and uh, stand on my feet very early because we had very stressful relationships because of you know obviously my me stressing to have freedom and like i was a very difficult daughter i was pushing all the time and i wanted to do things on my own and so it was not easy for him also so also i i, I think i i reached towards my decision of doing journalism pursuing journalism more as a process of rejection rather than a process of selection i'm the eldest child uh, and uh, you know i had a very protected upbringing we had no internet access you know when i was in high school and uh, there were no newspaper subscription just we had to like go to school come back and 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 study and do our thing and like there were no other avenues of knowing that there are courses of journalism which are available and i can pursue them i was only told about engineering that was what i knew about that i had no elder sibling to you know to guide me and my father was a very traditional he's a conservative man so anyway and, they, and there was also a fear of unknown um, nobody in my family uh, had like ever ventured into something like journalism or the very traditional people like doing traditional things you know basically uh, generations back uh, this was a family of farmers and somehow they had migrated to the city and a few of their sons were like they could gain education and they were doing jobs uh, some technical jobs etc and so they wanted their daughter to be like get a traditional education and get over with it but i had other plans so i uh, so i never had much information uh, because I, there were no news, newspaper subscription and internet access was, was very limited but somehow i got the new that there is a journalism course in my state i was born and raised in madhya pradesh state of india it's a central state and i felt very attached i felt that i belong to this space and i want to do this and uh, it was something very intuitive uh, and my parents obviously were not happy with it and they it took me a long time to convince them they were never like they we it, it kind of strained our relationship forever and uh, because they never liked they never accepted journalism because they thought that it is a profession which involves too much movement of a girl and uh, you know like traveling uh, at odd hours and uh, visiting places like jail and police station and courts which are not considered nice places to go to for women and meeting lot of unknown strange men so it was lot of uh, so they thought that i'll bring shame to the family lot of shame so they never uh, they were then they were very disc- they were dis- they discouraged me with with all in, in all possible ways in whichever ways they could uh but uh, i eventually got enrolled after a, a lot of turmoil and enduring lot of um, emotional physical you know setbacks and violence etc yeah. um uh, and that's that's about it i think that's how i started more of a process of rejection but i worked very hard and i i think i really loved i enjoyed doing journalism so i excelled yeah. and i was university topper and 
so when i started getting success slowly slowly my parents came around and uh, you know because you love your parents anyway and i've forgiven them and yeah. all of that happens but but you know the bruises remain so you say your parents have come around i presume they are very proud of you now um but are they happy that you have you know gone into journalism oh yes um, they are they're very happy because i have like really you know like i got so many awards for my work and i went to america i went to london i got achieving fellowship and i got all the top journalism awards uh, of india so they were happy about all the trophies and all but like i i feel that was very lucky you know i was at the right place at the right time i worked very hard but there was luck also and i was very passionate about journalism but i keep wondering what would have been my fate if you know i was not at the right place at the right time and uh, how would they have reacted i feel that families should love their children uh, unconditionally uh, you know success should not be a precondition but we in india like we've been like this is a developing country generally people are so poor and like it's so they have lived themselves lived such hard lives that all they want is just uh, you know a, like a safe future a safe career for the children and in such a scenario something as uh, adventurous as journalism scares them uh, because yeah. they don't have any idea of how things are going to play out so how with time i have also learned how to look at my parents with a lot of empathy and affection compassion and uh, i have forgiven them and like there's no because obviously you know you love your parents there no two ways about it but i do feel that it's it's been a very complicated journey and uh, and uh, my the wounds that i got on my on the domestic front are the deepest and probably they yeah. will remain with me i don't know for a long time yes yes yeah okay the sound now goes a little bit funny on priyanka's side and you can definitely hear me fidgeting <laughs> but it's only for this question and then it goes back to normal i promise so your work is quite emotionally taxing to say the least priyanka so very tangibly with regards to self-care are you able to separate yourself from your work if so how and what do you do to look after yourself or to self-care in general anyway so i think this is a very good question and uh, i wanted to come on board on this podcast because i felt very strongly about the subject of women and self care yeah. and uh, uh, to honestly to be honest with you yeah. i have never given any importance to self care till now and now i am facing the burnt of it now i am you know oh. facing the consequences it was not a good thing but i had never paid any um, you know heed to self care because there was no awareness and we do not have systems and we do not live in a society where there is any scope of any self care uh, you know for women to do oh. like generally speaking like in very crude terms if i have to paint yes. a picture so this is how it looks so uh, but but i think that it's very important because uh, because i i feel uh, that i have damaged myself very much uh, as a person while working as a reporter for 11 years now and then working on this book mm. uh, you inhale and you intake so much trauma because yeah. i and i have always been working on you know issues that are crucial to human life and existence and indian democracy for example caste atrocities and you know and things like epidemic diseases in india mm. uh, diseases which you know uh, there's a encephalitis 
outbreak in eastern part of India due to which a lot of young infants die every year. So I covered that. I have I have covered healthcare extensively mm. in rural India, and I've covered hunger, malnutrition. Uh, and riots and uh, and conflicts and police excesses and things like that human yeah. rights violation a lot so these are critical issues for what, for our democracy and for us as people but uh, while reporting them and obviously no no nation for women the book in itself is a you know it's a testament of uh, of, of how much uh, we have to correct in india and how much uh, human rights violation and social justice uh, the long way that social justice has to go here uh, so, uh, but 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 by working all of this, by while working all on of these subjects, uh, while listening to the tapes again and again and again as a reporter, while looking at the photographs, while interviewing mm. the victims, and then uh, it was like opening a can of worms. I can uh, imagine. And like opening a can of worms day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year, like for mm. a decade, and then living with some of those worms. It was like you know, uh, being swimming in the ocean of in an ocean of poison and then you have to kind of you know like inhale or like uh, absorb some of that poison if you want to bring it out if you yeah. want to write about it it's not possible to do these things from distance you have to be in, you have to get involved in the story yes. emotionally involved psychologically involved and that involvement really bruises you it kind mm. of uh, alters you as a person and i for one do not remember what kind of person I was 11 years ago or even five years ago, six years ago. I think that I am a mutant of my old self now. Mm. And uh, I had like kind of absorbed a lot of darkness. And uh, but now uh, I, I think I reached a breaking point. I and I had realized uh, a couple of months ago, last year, actually, during last winters. Uh, and I realized that I need time for myself because mm. I was not able to concentrate anymore on writing you know I would have uh, I would have a word page open in front of me and I would not be able to write a copy yes. copy uh, you know writing copies is something which is the most natural thing for me like I can write I know the keyboard I do not even have to look down at the keyboard like I write so quickly that is when it struck me that I have uh. I need I need help and I need time for myself mm. and I need to heal and I uh, took refuge in uh, in literature in, in art in classical music I think that art heals you that's my way everyone has their way of doing things second thing that I decided was to look after myself physically because last year I turned 31 so I on my 31st birthday I, I felt that I need to take care of my body also and yeah. uh, I've been ignoring it and uh, so I started exercising I started to go on morning runs and when I started running I realized that I was you know like panting a lot and I was uh, mm. not able to run for long uh, uh, so uh, that made me realize how bad my physical health was so I, I decided to work on it because I know that I have time and I can correct things but it's sad that it took me so long because we just do not have the culture of you know women looking after this themselves yeah I never grew up my mother I did not grow up in an environment where I could see women around me you know joining gym or or you know, going for runs in their <clears throat> in track pants. I never saw women taking care of themselves around me, so it was not something that was on my mind. While I saw men going to gym all the time, I saw yeah. that men are kind of you know building six pack and they are kind of you know boys around me in my families also. They were going to gym yeah. at very young age, but but no women. I I do not remember a sight of a forty 
or 50 year old women in drag pants yes. or like in whatever in pajamas or whatever she feels comfortable in running around or going around so women when they get up in the morning they make chai they make tea mm. and they you know prepare lunches for their husbands and the children and they have no time to you know go out for a run or something like that we do not have that culture which yeah. i feel is is bad and this should change and women should start taking care of themselves because it affects them psychologically uh, also and uh, emotionally also and above all you know like you whatever i feel that how how so many about uh, years you might have in your life you should uh, live them well uh, yes. be healthy be healthy during those years emotionally healthy physically healthy Yes, I totally, totally agree. And this is why I'm almost trying to push women to get into self-care as a sort of political stance against policies or a society that does not put women or their needs first. So I very much see self-care and the sort of demand for it, demand for your own time to be the next step in gender equality and be the promotion of not just women's rights, but of their entitlement to a safe, happy, equal, ambitious life, the same as men experience. So here are just some facts. Despite women making up 70% of the frontline workers, be that in medicine, you know, as doctors and nurses or teachers, during the pandemic, they have disproportionately lost their jobs. And there are a number of reasons behind this. One of the reasons is that the type of work or contracts like part-time that women go into could be less stable than men's. Statistically, women are less likely to make more money than men as well. So if it's between looking after children and working, whoever makes the most money is probably the one who gets to keep their job. But equally, and remember this is not just statistics that regard the UK, the role of women or what you perceive the role of women to be will likely dictate how they live their life. So for instance, women shoulder 60% more unpaid work than men and since the pandemic, this has increased. 67% of working women feel as though they're the default parent most or all of the time. So the feeling of having a lack of time, maybe an increase in stress and anxiety is really felt by women. And sadly, since COVID-19, domestic violence has significantly increased, with calls to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline increasing by 25% and visits to the Refuge website having increased by 950%. So self-care, where you're scheduling in and demanding time and resources for your own health and to further your ambitions in life and to increase self-worth and confidence and the autonomy over your general life. It's women's time now to put their health and their safety first, to put themselves first in policy and law, to be aware of what's going on in their world, not saying that they're not, but to band together, you know, women supporting women, to really make these changes in society and globally. And just to finally put this in perspective, some more facts for you, which by the way, if you email info at womenwhoselfcare.org, I'm more than happy to send you my sources. More than a third of women who are intentionally killed are murdered by a current or former intimate partner. 18% of ever partnered women and girls, meaning you've had sex with them uh, and it's been a relationship, aged 15 to 49, had experienced physical and or sexual violence at the hand of a current or previous partner. 71% of all human trafficking victims are female, including children. Femicide, the murder of women or girls based on their gender by a man, is on the rise. In South Africa, a woman is murdered every three hours. 
Today, 500 million women and girls globally are estimated to lack the adequate facilities for menstrual hygiene management. And finally, just to round it off because I could go on and on, on average, the police in England and Wales receive over 100 calls relating to domestic abuse every hour. So, as is probably quite apparent now, women whose self-care stands for more than what the beauty industry sort of markets self-care as, you know, uh, face masks, bubble baths, which are totally fine in their own right for de-stressing, etc. I think everyone would agree there are benefits as well as negatives to the sort of beauty industry. But the beauty industry is inexplicably linked to the beauty burden that is absolutely overwhelming. The burden of beauty or the excessive desire to look good, be that a pressure from yourself or what I'm saying is from society, tends to dictate what women can and cannot do. So for instance, if we look very crudely at bodies, throughout history, if you look at sculpture, men's bodies have nearly always been in the picture of health. You know, rippling abs, muscular athletes. That's what universally societies tend to prescribe for men health. Whereas the depiction of beauty for women is rarely based on health, but rather manipulated by the trending fashion at the time, which is not only exhausting to keep up with, but potentially really dangerous. Women have forced themselves into corsets, take diet pills, think of, god, not even that long ago, heroin chic in the 90s, women starve themselves to look a particular way. So Priyanka, is there such a beauty burden, which I'm almost 100% there is, in India? It's absolutely, uh, it's the beauty burden is immense and it's unbearable and I, and I absolutely, I can connect with what you're saying and I feel very angry about this. I feel very strongly about these issues, about how beauty is related to age and, uh, you know, appeasing the main male gaze and I mm. want to change all these things and I, you know, like I, you have to change, start the change from home. So I have started the change from myself and I you know I talk about this with women around me all the time so there's this thing one thing which really makes me angry is like I'm a writer also and I I have been writing non-fiction but I enjoy reading fiction too so I and I uh, I read a lot of books and I I know about and I read about all these writers and directors and everyone and I have like and I appreciate them greatly their work some of my favorite directors, you know, but but uh, and writers. But when I see and painters and artists and all of that, and, and and other people also. But when I look at them and their lives, like they are having thriving lives till the age of eighty. Like uh, you know, having for example Bergman or something. She he had I think five or six marriages or whatever. And the last marriage happened when he was I think in his sixties or seventies in in the later part of his life. The point I'm trying to make here is uh, that uh, you know it's so unfair that men have uh, you know they can they have the right and they have the access and opportunity to live and to enjoy their life till they're alive uh, and they are considered you know like desirable or whatever till later part of their lives and all that and uh, uh, but but women this is a in, in the this women are considered as a trash bin after 40. This is a sociological grooming in which we, you and me, women have little part to play. But this is a system actually which has been built by men because it favors them. Because they thought that obviously after 40, like, you know, she's a trash bin, so now leave her and now we can have like another younger person or whoever. So because they did not treat it, the patriarchal mindset did not treat women as whole human beings. So they always thought of us as some commodity or I don't know, something 
close to a like commodity which can be used and then discarded or like considered in of an expiry date etc etc so this really makes me angry what i wish is that women should you know be allowed to live as full human beings should have full access and um, should have full control on their lives and should uh, be just allowed to live as natural healthy human beings uh, who are you know friendly good to talk to i am not speci- specifically talking about desirable or not desirable that is uh, you know that is very personal that is each person's to his or her own but at least you know a healthy person who is healthy smart intelligent aware person who you would love to have a cup of coffee with or you just really love to have a conversation love to have as a friend a kind compassionate human being so i think yeah. that the life ends at 40 thought process is a very patriarchal male generated male nurtured thought process that we need to challenge and uh, for for that what's important is that we start loving ourselves as as women we start taking care of ourselves you know we start taking care of we start taking the charge of our lives in our own hands and and going to gym or like exercising running is not we should not even think about how men are going to think even for a minute my target for working on my body is to like make myself fitter better Uh, and obviously attractive like why not uh, attractive but not for you hello who's who are all you know like who are all ready to trash me at the age of 40 i will look attractive and i will obviously if i if i like someone if somebody likes me i'll might you know go out on a date or something but that will be on my terms not on your terms who are who is all all the time telling me that i am finished at the age of 40 so we need to get out of all these discouraging thought processes and and fitness is very important because there are number of diseases that are women centric um, like you know that only happens to women like breast cancer and cervical cancer and all that so we mm. need we need to you know obviously we cannot predict and you know this is no one knows uh, what you know diseases you cannot say anything about this is un- unpredictable but what we can do is we can uh, every every doctor everyone says that if you exercise daily and if you take care of yourself you will minimize your immunity will be strong and you will minimize the risk of maximum diseases obviously if something is bad is going to happen it's going to happen across gender to everyone anything can happen to anyone but but what what i'm trying to stress on is that women should exercise so that so so that they you know minimize chances of diseases terminal diseases yeah. and reg- and like regular uh, other ailments also they should uh, give fitness prime importance because if their spine is strong because you know we menstruate all the time and we lose so much blood and we lose so much blood during childbirth also and uh, and i've seen women in india uh, uh, most of them most of my mother my grandmother all of them have osteoporosis so i have like i know thousands of women in india who have all like holes in their bones and like because of because they lose calcium and calcium and they do not they are not aware enough uh, or there's no one in the family who can you know uh, tell them that you need to take cal- supplement calcium tablets so uh, so that you can have a easy life no your bones are not you do not have holes in your bones you do not have osteoporosis so that you can even if you're 70 you are able to go to the washroom even if you're 80 you can walk around you can be well you can enjoy your years you know you can be happy <laughs> you need to take care of your body uh, you need to take you need to take calcium supplements you need to see doctor on on regular basis take care of your teeth 
take care of your uh, bones uh, and uh, just be very aware of you know like anything that's happening if any all changes in your menstrual cycle or if any lump in your breast or anything just be very aware and uh, these are the things these are the basics but in india i cannot imagine i cannot imagine when will be able to create a environment when we, when you know uh, women are um, are are aware enough uh, to take care of themselves like this i think for a person like me who has so much exposure it took me 32 years uh, when like i'm so well traveled and i have all the you know i am so much i'm so up to updated with all the news that is coming in but still it took me so many years so i cannot imagine i think it's going to take ages and decades and decades but we are on it and we have to start at least somewhere Yes, and you know, I feel the same anguish with when are we going to be free from this beauty burden? And I'm just going to very quickly touch upon what you said about periods and you know losing blood, etc. I do think the shame around periods stems from the beauty burden. You know, blood is oh, it's gross, it's disgusting, which isn't associated with women. You know, bodily functions. It's a joke that. Uh, in both ways of that of saying that is an absolute joke that from a very young age it's oh girls don't poo or fart you know and that girls who do do things like that as a joke you know it's unladylike it's unseemingly and it's just such a it's bullshit is what it is because actually it's intensely damaging but having said that i do feel as though there is progression um in the uk for instance scotland is the first country to annihilate um taxes vat on period products and that is a step in the right equal direction because you know there's such a thing as the pink tax where women's products are, are more expensive than men simply because they're marketed towards women so it is you know not only are women paid less because of xyz um <laughs> women also have to spend more on xyz in their life but i do feel as though there is a momentous change going on um within the beauty industry you know women now promoting themselves on instagram for instance of growing muscles and being strong and um i do hope the period conversation is continuing and is happening globally um and that women are thought of and it's not hushed or shamed because it's not the same as having a headache it's not the same as going for the loo having a period you know periods affect you not just on the days that you're having it all the time because of the amount of hormones that are in it you know it's your body is setting up to pr- make a life really you know so that leads me on to motherhood um which we'll talk about very briefly because <laughs> i think i'm going on here and on and on i could speak to you forever priyanka um but we discussed before this podcast um about motherhood and how when a woman becomes a mother she almost slightly loses a bit of her identity. Not all women, let's put that out there, not all women. But it seems overall that there is, when a woman becomes a mother, obviously there is pressure to look after another person. Obviously, that is your role as a parent. But women seem to lose their identity in that, you know, if they go out and do something whilst they're a mother, they're so harshly judged. And for instance, when a man becomes a father, he is, hello, my name is John and I am a lawyer and I have two children. When it's a woman, it's, hello, I'm a lawyer and a mother. And the word mother equates to so much and it almost seems as though her life then becomes about 
service, complete servitude to her children. And almost what it is that made her her um, is a little bit lost. And I have a sweet, kind of bittersweet memory example of when my own mother, you know, was sort of talking to me about life before my sister and I, which for any child, you know, their parent telling them that they had a life before them is crazy. <laughs> but I remember really starkly thinking, oh my goodness, my my mum is not just mum, my mum is, you know, I'm sure she doesn't mind me putting her name out there. My my mum is Jan Carswick, you know, she she lived this full life before me. And now obviously children have natural constraints on your life. And my parents very much still lived their climbing dreams when they had my sister and I. But I remember distinctly feeling, um, knowing about my dad's sort of previous childless life and not finding it that exceptional, but realising that my mother was more than a mother, you know, more than taking care of me, that her worth, her ambitions, her dreams were independent of me sometimes, was so perplexing to me at the time. And I do sometimes feel guilty, actually, for my mother's emotional burden. Um, Obviously, parents will take on the roles that suit them best, and stereotypically, women are better at communication, but there is such a thing as the emotional burden, which loads of mothers take on, you know, to be there to emotionally support their children and their partners, you know, and you hear women say, I need me time, um, you know, there's no holidays, there's no breaks with children, etc. And it's like their well-being just is then automatically out the window and seen as secondary. But even still, even still, I think the idea that mothers you know, it's rare to be a mother and to be successful. This is why they're so interesting at the moment. It is not rare, and this is why we should always compare. It is not rare for a CEO, a leader of a company, or any of these things to be to be a father. Because the primary caregiver, or the role of looking after children, is not assumed or automatically given to men. Yes, yes. So this thing, the whole period conversation in India, when we raise this question, at least uh, in, in hush voices, these questions have begun to be, you know, asked, at least in metropolitan cities, in cities like Bombay and Delhi. Mm. But when they are asked, the usual response is very unempathetic, to say the least. And there are very few organizations in India which, which give uh, proper maternity leave. Um, and uh, BBC, for one, gives it. They are very generous. But obviously, this is not an Indian organization. Generally, in Indian regular Indian newsrooms, uh, there's no provision of uh, of maternity leave. Or if even if there is, um, it's not more than you know two months or three months in many cases. So women are considered then a liability rather than an asset, you know, which, which kind of, you know, further hinders their progress professional prospects yeah. which is which i think this mindset has also been nurtured by patriarchy i think it's it's absolutely uh, i can absolutely relate to you and i can absolutely absolutely relate to your experience here i think in india the situation is more or less the same but actually worse than what yours what did what you have just explained uh because uh very outrightly i mean to say very on your face very explicitly all the responsibility of child care is uh, is thrusted on women and uh, and 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 they are expected to like to to do it uh, selflessly and all that and if there is question everybody's like what a bad mother are you and how can you you know yes. talk yes. like talk like this about your child and how can you know like not want to do the share 
to hold the responsibility for your children and all that so there's a lot of judgment involved and uh, and the man is just you know like after giving the sperm he's so free, he's free and and and, and so the life of the woman just changes 360 degrees it's not the same so you have to like raise the child almost single handedly and uh, you're expected to do it and if um, it's tiring and exhausting raising a child is very tiring and exhausting you need help you need your family to be around you need your spouse to be around you need other kind of help and you need support because you know it can be really exhausting but women are made to believe here and like because of their own conditioning also they they take it upon them themselves mostly that they have to do everything on their own and it's their responsibility it's their child and they get involved in so much that most of them they you know like uh, gave up their careers and they stop working and they're not expected to work after that they're all they're expected to us to take care of the house and they to raise the child and child raising child bearing child raising is considered to be the prime you know objective of marriage or you know things like that it's like really ridiculous uh, i think and i believe that two people should be together only because if they love each other that's the only thing not to like you know bring a raise children or it's 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 good it's nice um, you know i'm i'll be happy for you if you want to have a child i'm or i'll be sending my good wishes but that should not be the prime reason for people to marry but in india the thought process is that you get you get married only because you have to like kind of you know like take the genes of family ahead and you know create a progeny and all that which is absolutely yeah. <laughs> ridiculous uh, but but women do share um, the whole of responsibility and then generally i've seen women like getting so involved with their children emotionally sentimentally physically that they just you know like nothing is more important uh, for them than than their children and now i tell you the interesting part is what my thought process says was what my understanding and living in india for 32 years tells me is that this whole thing the soul conditioning that after you have a child you cannot think of doing a phd you cannot think of going back to work you cannot think of having a normal life is also raised and nurtured and uh, uh, nurtured and nourished by patriarchy so patriarchy has created such a deep seated world around us uh, a uh, regressive world around us and it's and this is so deep seated and like so well planned and so well executed on the on the name of emotion that you know you're not able to figure it out that you almost feel bad if you want something for yourself what i'm trying to say is uh, because of the conditioning is such is and it's so deep the conditioning is so deep social conditioning cultural conditioning family conditioning is so deep even if you want to kind of you know like have a life of your own go back to your work and have you know do things uh, make a phd do a phd or like you know take a break and, uh, and 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 go to some other country to do a course that you have always been wanting to do for 2 years and everybody will be like how will you go out for 2 years you know what will happen of the child how will you go out for 2 months 2 years 2 3 years so there is nobody else like all the father is not not there to take care of the child all the responsibility is considered of the mother so you have to be there you're kind of chained and you you know just raise the child that's it so but there are some happy like good exceptions i have friends uh, you know who who are mothers and who were able to you know like do fellowships and all and who were able to leave their children back home but very rare exceptional examples like 0.1% 99.9% and 99k% cases uh, women are expected to just you know just to cease to exist 
keep the mother in them alive which i feel is very unfair and because all of this is done so emotionally and this has been uh, we are living and surviving in this time we are you know facing these situations because they have been so skillfully woven around us uh, via centuries of regressive you know thought process that we feel that it's almost like a sin you know the mother would feel like it's sin to talk about her own well-being or you know if a 2 year old toddler is is around in the hall which is very unfair i think uh, we need to create a society where mother and father equally share the responsibility of raising the child and we need to find ways when both have their own lives as well are not required or expected to discard or to dismiss their their own self because you know if you're not yourself then then you'll never be happy and then you can never share or give away that happiness sacrifice should not be the founding stone of relationships it should be love and compassion totally totally agree so with regards to compassion priyanka what do you do to self care and make sure that you're healthy and happy and following your ambitions i've taken 6 months off work which is a radical step for me i've like shocked everyone at my workplace and everybody's <laughs> shocked and and uh, uh, but i have taken this radical step because i thought that i needed time for myself and i mm-hmm. am trying to be normal with not doing anything because i think i will like we become so hyper uh, and we become accustomed to such a hyper lifestyle that i and i have been working so hard as a teenager as a child and like since i can remember that i start feeling guilty if i do not do anything so i'm like trying to get rid of that guilt now and i'm trying to not do anything and to just uh, uh, you know like just sit quietly be with myself read enjoy reading a lot what are you reading right now i was reading there's a hindi writer um, that i enjoy reading very much he's he's known as the poet of loneliness in india his name is nirmal verma so i read a lot of his books so i was i read i like to read in my native language uh, and i read a lot of english literature also uh, but i was reading that and then i was reading a book by peter hanke recently long long story short farewell uh so basically right now the books that i bought with me to uae were mostly of nirmal verma's books so i was reading yes. him and uh, i enjoy watching movie i like uh, so i i'm trying to watch films i'm trying to read and just be quiet and uh, i'm i'm learning to live with myself and learning uh, to you know like not need people around or like i'm just learn to be how to be quiet and how to be because i want to resist you know my need to be entertained all the time living in an environment where we always want noise always want entertainment always want something on my on our phone so i am planning to now after going back to india i'm flying after two days so after going back to i'm planning to live in the mountains in the himalayas for 6 months during my career break and uh, i uh i'm planning to read i'm planning to exercise i'm planning to lose some weight and the one thing that i am going to learn is how to drive so that's one skill that i uh, yes so i was not able to learn driving till now because of time constraints i never got the chance to learn how to drive so i'm going to learn driving uh, driving car so i i know how to drive two wheelers but not cars just you know rest and take long walks in the mountains in the cedar forest oh. around uh, you know in 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 devdar forest in india oh my god i'm so jealous of that <laughs> so that was the amazingly inspirational priyanka debay i feel so much fire in my belly after speaking to her 
I really hope you did the same. Priyanka's book is available on Amazon, so you can go and buy it right now. It's called No Nation for Women, Reportage on Rape from India, the World's Largest Democracy. You should definitely buy it. I will say it is harrowing, but it's all fact statistics and based on real life stories. It's an amazing book to read. So do put some time aside to read that one. Thank you again so much, Priyanka, for coming on episode five of Women Who Self Care. Next week, we have Lottie Leafy, who will be talking all things women in finance. From the bottom of my heart, I hope you are safe and well and enjoyed this episode.